Luke 22, starting verse 66. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said to him, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Go to Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 10. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Then when Jesus, or Judas, when, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it's the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessings. This time of study, ask that you would open our eyes to see, our hearts to believe your truth. Pray for any who are in this place who do not know you, who are still enslaved, still dead in their sins, that you would make them aware of it, that you'd bring deep contrition and genuine repentance to their hearts today. Grant them that and grant them faith in your son, Jesus. Pray that you would save them by your grace and for your glory this very day. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. In 2 Corinthians 7, we are given the idea that Paul has written some sort of strongly worded letter. Some people refer to it as Paul's harsh letter to the church in Corinth. And we see that this letter, whether it's part of 1 Corinthians or another letter that we don't have preserved in the scriptures, we see that this letter would accomplish the goal for which Paul sent it. We read this in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Paul says, I rejoice in the result of you becoming sorrowful. That's what he's saying. 
I rejoice. I am happy that you became sorry. I'm happy that you became sorry because of what that sorrow produced. That sorrow that they experienced was the right kind of sorrow. And what we hear from this passage is that there are at least two different kinds of sorrow. A godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. Each produces something different. Godly sorrow produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, while worldly sorrow produces death. So here's proof that just because someone has tears in their eyes, just because someone regrets what they have done, does not mean that they have repented. There are many who are deeply sorrowful for what they've done. There are many who regret the choices they've made in their lives. There are many who suffer from the shame of those decisions, and yet there is no true, genuine, biblical repentance present. Sorrow, tears, and regret do not in themselves equal repentance. Sorrow, tears, regret in themselves do not equal repentance. For all of the inward feelings and outward expressions can be present in one who has no repentance at all. We could provide many examples of people, people throughout history who deeply regretted life choices and the things that they did throughout their lives in which there was no genuine repentance. But we need to go no further than this perhaps most stark of examples, and that is the example between Peter and Judas. Forever proof that the greatest sins will come to judgment and the greatest sins can be forgiven. Each sinner can be forgiven or else they will be left to the consequences of their own sin. In a sermon entitled, Is All Lost? We're going to finish our look at the Jewish phase of Jesus's legal trials before he goes off to the Roman phase of his trials. And we're also going to learn about from Judas's response to the verdict that happens as a result of those three Jewish trials that occur. So first of all, if you're taking notes, point number one, write this down. When winning is losing, when winning is losing. And here we see the condemnation of Jesus. But in order to understand what's going on contextually, let's remember together what's happened so far in Jesus's arrest and the trials that are going on. Now, first of all, this started with a capture, with a betrayal and with an arrest. Remember, Judas was willing to betray Jesus to the Jewish authorities who have been bent on killing Jesus for some time for a mere 30 pieces of silver. Judas then led a cohort of troops out to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he knew Jesus frequented with the other disciples. Remember, Judas had left them while in the upper room. And now he comes and he refines them in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus had just been praying and encouraging his disciples to do so as well. But they're sleeping. Remember that whole story? Well, the Judas tells the soldiers, I'm going to indicate which one to arrest through kissing him. I'm going to betray Jesus with a kiss. Jesus, as the troops approach, asks them, who are you looking for? And they respond, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. And as soon as he says that, all the troops fall backward to the ground. Jesus asks them then a second time, who are you looking for? Who are you coming here to seize? And again, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. I'm sure the second time 
is a little hesitant. You know, <laughs> okay, you're bracing themselves. We're going to fall back again. Um, before we were demanding, now we're kind of asking Jesus of Nazareth. That's who we're looking for. Jesus says, I've already told you, I am he. You didn't come for these disciples, so let them go. As soon as Peter realizes what's going on, he rashly pulls out a sword and swings. I'm sure he is swinging for Elkis' head. All he gets is his ear. The ear lops off. Jesus quickly heals, miraculously heals Malchus's ear, the high priest's servant, and he tells Peter to put the sword away. He says, I've come to drink this cup that the Father has given to me. Then Jesus asks the soldiers, why have you come out to me as you would a robber? I've been out in the open day after day in the temple complex, and you've done nothing to me then. Why do you come out to me as if I'm some violent, aggressive individual? I mean, this whole, what Jesus is doing is he's highlighting the absurdity of the scene. He's done nothing wrong. They come against him with a big show of force, a show that's unfitted to what they've seen from Jesus, his kindness, his compassion, his goodness. Yet on the other hand, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, the forces also could be seen in another perspective if you consider Jesus' deity as pathetically small. As if you could take the Son of God into custody. Jesus says, the only reason why you're able to arrest me at this point is because this is the hour and power of darkness. Jesus is another word saying, you have this hour. You'll have this moment. But this hour of darkness will soon be swallowed up by a glorious morning of resurrection power. You have this moment, but you will not have the last moment. This proceeds then into two pre-trials. So we've got the formal trial that we're going to look at here this morning. But leading up to that are two pre-trials. First, Jesus is brought to Annas. Annas was the, used to be the high priest. He was deposed by the Romans. It seems that he must have exercised some amount of still legal power and um, religious power because his own sons and now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is presently the high priest. But he's had other sons that have been high priests as well. So he's exercising influence by who's being selected for high priestdom and it's also quite possible that high priests usually serve for life. And so even though the Romans have kicked him out, maybe the Jews are still looking to Caiaphas as the real religious authority. But for whatever reason, Jesus is brought to Annas' house first. After a little discussion there, he sends Jesus off to Caiaphas. So Caiaphas, who is the high priest, probably has a building in the same sort of complex. And here now we saw a variety of false witnesses who are brought before Jesus trying to make some sort of charge stick. The only problem is, amongst all these liars, is they can't even get the lies straight. They can't have their false witnesses collaborate one another's story. Nothing is cohesive. It's not fitting together. It's not authentic. And so finally, Caiaphas, the high priest, just asks Jesus directly, Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? To this, Jesus says, It's as you say. And from now on, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. At this point, remember, the high priest rips his, glo- his clothing. He rips his garment, a sign of utter contempt at blasphemy that the high priest has heard, or so he thinks he has heard. What's so interesting about the moment is that it's super fitting for a much different reason than the high priest Caiaphas believes, because here the high priest Caiaphas is standing in the presence of the true high priest as soon as Jesus announces who he is, the high priest rips his clothing. It's, it's almost as if to say, as we know from the bigger picture, it's almost as if to say the high priest should be disrobed. He should be defrocked. 
He should have his position removed from him. If there was one thing the high priest ought to be able to do is to identify the Messiah and to point God's people to God's son. But that's not at all what Caiaphas is doing. And so in an interesting, ironic moment, he tears his garments apart, which really in the I think in the big picture sense of this, we see that Jesus hasn't condemned himself. Caiaphas has condemned himself. Now, all of this happened under cloak of darkness. Remember, they're out in the Garden of Gethsemane after the upper room, um, you know, having the last supper in the upper room. Garden of Gethsemane is all at night. He's arrested at night. He's brought to Annas's house at night. He's brought over to Caiaphas's house at night. And so all this has happened under cloak of darkness, which was strictly prohibited by Jewish legal standards. They wouldn't treat any case this way. You didn't have a case happening in the middle of the night. Why? Because it looked crafty. Right? It looks like you're sneaky. You're doing something underhanded. And that's exactly what they're doing. We're certain by the manner in which this trial goes forward of what's going on. The Jewish leaders knew that they had nothing substantive against Jesus. And they feared the general populace clamoring to defend Jesus. So they arranged for these events to underhandedly exterminate the man who never did anything wrong. But then you still got the issue of we're not in power. The Romans are. We can't just go out and stone Jesus because we're going to get in trouble with Rome. Or we're going to incite a mob riot and we're going to get in trouble with Rome. We don't have the right to uh, engaging, you know, some sort of capital offense here. We can't actually put him to death. So we have to have some charges to place against him to bring him in front of the Romans. And they can't have a verdict that was reached in the middle of the night. So what do they do? Well, we know that Peter is denied Jesus. He's heard the rooster crow, right? And so we're coming to the early hours and we're told here in the Gospels that as soon as it was morning, so at the at daybreak, they quickly assembled the Sanhedrin. Now, this is where we get into the official trial. We see the Sanhedrin included the chief priests and scribes, a group of some 70 Pharisees and Sadducees. They have the necessary quorum present. So there's an air of legitimacy being presented because this thing has to at least appear official, especially if there's going to be any public concern. Their opposition needs to be unified. And it really is interesting to note that among the Pharisees and Sadducees, they agreed on little. But they all agreed on this. And they all were pushing forward for Jesus' death. Now, remember that the verdict was a foregone conclusion. This entire proceeding was a verdict in search of evidence. Right? It's not a, a charge or an accusation looking for evidence and leading to a verdict. It was a foregone conclusion what the verdict was. They wanted him dead. They had a sentence already figured out. They're not trying to figure out how can we you know, attach something to Jesus to put him to death. This had no resemblance to a fair trial. Note that Jesus is given no time to develop a defense. He's offered no defense attorney. There's no help being offered him. No opportunity to give other witness uh, examination of this sort of thing. Even the situation from a strictly legal procedure, you know, they're trying to do it early in the morning. So that way it's at least during the day. But you also have to understand that another of their legal codes was that if they had a trial, and especially if it was going to be something like death as the verdict, they could not have it happen all in the same day. You'd have to pass sentence and judgment, and then the next day is when that would happen. But this all happens within a matter of hours. They're violating even their own legal procedures to get this thing done. But they want to give it at least this air of looking as if they were 
doing it the right way. Now, what they have learned through the pre-trials is they're not going to go through that thing again, right? Let's not bring in the false witnesses. That did not go well for us. We have a whole lot of egg on our face. It was already embarrassing enough before Caiaphas. So we're going to bypass all of that. We're going to remove all of that. So they've got a, a goal for the prosecution. They're going to condemn him, not for anything that they've done, nor for anything that anyone can say against him, for nothing's holding up. They're going to condemn him on the basis of who he himself says that he is. That's what they're going to do. They're going to ask him, who do you say that you are? And on the basis of his testimony regarding himself, we're going to condemn him. And what they have to, and the trick of this is that they've got a religious scruple with Jesus, but they've got to translate the religious scruple to a political scruple. Because you see, Rome doesn't care much about people who are making religious authority claims, but if he's making a claim towards kingship, in a political way, we can nail them with that. So this is the Jewish idea. We can't get him with false witnesses. We have nothing evidence against him. We're going to ask him who he is. We've got to tie a charge of blasphemy, a religious problem, to a political problem. And then we'll usher him on to Pilate. And we'll go through the Roman procedures to get him killed. Farrar says this. There were many old accusations against him on which they could not rely his violations of the Sabbath, as they called them, were all connected with miracles and brought them, therefore, onto dangerous grounds. You don't want to bring those things up. His rejection of oral tradition involved the question on which the Sadducees and Pharisees were in a deadly feud. They weren't in agreement about the oral tradition. His authoritative cleansing of the temple might be regarded as, as with favor by the rabbis and by the people. He's clearing out all the money changers and all that stuff. There's a lot of people that were... Glad that that had happened. Had known that those were abuses of Jewish power. The charge of esoteric doctrines had been refuted by his utterly utter publicity of his life. The charge of open heresies had broken down from the total absence of any supporting testimony. The problem before them was how do we convert an ecclesiastical charge into a political charge so that way we can put him to death. So the authorities bypass any attempt to bring in witnesses. They don't want to publicly announce any particular charge. And instead, they just go straight for the item that they cannot stomach the thought of and that what they consider Jesus to be worthy of death for. If you're the Christ, tell us. They invite Jesus to incriminate himself by telling them who he was. But that's the only thing that worked with Caiaphas. Let's try that out now here with the Sanhedrin. Now, Jesus knows exactly what they're doing. He knows that his testimony will not be believed. He knows that these men are not interested in discovering truth. Should he ask them a question, they're not going to answer it. Jesus said, this is first, Jesus' first response. He says, if I tell you who I am, you won't believe me. And if I ask you a question, you won't answer me. I think what Jesus is doing here, he's exposing the sham of a trial. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, we're not having a dialogue. We're not searching out truth. You don't care about truth. Reminds me of Luke 20. Jesus, this is uh, verses 3 through 8. Jesus answered and said to these religious leaders, I'll ask you a question. You tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? The religious leaders reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Why didn't you believe him? If we say he's from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they were convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And so Jesus says, I will then not tell you by what authority I do these things. 
But Jesus did by that question. He's just asking, be honest. What do you think about John? Was he from God or not? They're like, well, we don't think he was from God. So, but if we say that, then the people are going to get upset with us because they thought that he was from God. You see that they're involved in a whole bunch of duplicity. They're not after truth. They're after their own prideful um, prestige. They're duplicitous. They're power-hungry individuals. They're not concerned with truth or fact. They're not open inquirers seeking truth. This is not a real trial. That's not what this is at all. So then Jesus says after that, from now on, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, again, this is a reference to both Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. And what Jesus is alluding to is this. Right now, at this moment, you supposedly sit in judgment over me, but it won't be that way for very long. It won't be that way for very long. Events that are about to transpire will change everything. As Jesus is the one being judged, he's also asserting his authority to ultimately judge everyone and all things. This reminds me that many people today have this backward. Many people believe they sit in judgment over Jesus when it's really the other way around. Jesus sits in judgment of you. The question is whether or not you'll come to him in repentance and faith. Because Jesus is also gracious and merciful. The messianic flavor of this quotation and the high claim evokes interest from everyone there. It says here, all then join in the questioning. So as soon as he says the son of man line, they, they note it as messianic. They know this from Psalm 110. They understand what Daniel 7 has to say about this. They know the, the connotations of the phrase. I'm sure that the definite article then becomes very important when they say, so are you saying that you are the son of God? Certainly, all of God's people in some way, shape, or form, in a general way, can be referred to as sons of God. But he says, are you the son of God then? The answer to that is yes, absolutely. Matter of fact, Luke's gospel has made this very plain in repeated uh, repeated effect. Listen to some of these. For example, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells, tells her that Jesus would be called the son of the most high. Luke 1.32, angel Gabriel says to Mary, Jesus will be the son of the most high. God, the father said at Jesus' baptism, he said this to Jesus, you are my beloved son. Luke 3.22, again, the father speaks at Jesus' transfiguration. This is my son. Luke 9.35, is Jesus the son of God? Yes. Now, Jesus' reply to the Jewish council is interesting. Literally, he says, the NAS translates it, yes, I am. Other translations have something of a variety of differences here. Literally, it, it translates, you say that I am. You say that I am. Now, this phrase has kind of been interesting as people kind of have grappled with it. What is Jesus trying to say with it? Well, you can tell from how the religious leaders respond to it that they see it as Jesus affirming that claim, right? They respond by saying, what more evidence do we need? So in other words, Jesus has affirmed what they've said, but he said it in an unusual way. Uh, the NAS, again, I think isn't a good translation here. It's just saying, yes, I am. It, it kind of misses the nuance of what Jesus is trying to communicate when he says, yes, I believe he says yes here. But in the way in which he says it is more like this. That's your way of saying it, not mine. We have some differences in our understanding of who the son of God is and who the son of man is. We have some differences there. Yet, I cannot deny those words. <laughs> so, yes, I am, but you've said it slightly differently than I would have said it. And at that moment, though, the Sanhedrin is 
heard enough. They pounce. Like, they don't want to have any further discussion. Remember what Jesus said earlier? You won't believe me if I tell you, and you don't want to answer questions if I ask them. And so Andrew's like, oh, uh, stop everything. Stop. Let's not ask any more questions. We've heard all that we need to hear. He's condemned himself by his own lips in front of all of us. Jesus tells the truth, and he's condemned for it. But the Jews don't have power of capital punishment under Roman rule. So Jesus is bound and sent to Pilate for Roman judgment on the matter. Now, Judas has been in some way, shape or form watching all of this. We don't know exactly where he is, but we see that Judas's plot has come to fruition. He won, right? That's what he was after. He got what he wanted. But how does Judas now feel about all of this? We see quickly that. His winning was losing. Point number two, responding to sin, regret or repentance. And to do this, I want to do a study in regret and then a study in repentance. And I want to look quickly at Judas and then quickly remind you from last time we were together about Peter. First of all, a study in regret, Judas. We could say in the words of 2 Corinthians, worldly sorrow leading to death. Judas was full of regret, not full of repentance. I wonder what Judas has been thinking through the Jewish trial proceedings. I mean, he saw the mockery of justice going on. Perhaps he's also reflecting back upon the fact that Jesus had told him in advance that very night that Judas would betray him. Remember, it's the moment when Judas gets up and leaves the room. He even asked Judas, as Judas is approaching him, he says, Do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Are you coming to betray me with a kiss, Judas? Jesus forecast Judas's betrayal. He knew Judas's manner of betrayal, even telling him before he did it, you come betraying me with a kiss. Also, I'm quite sure that Judas was among the soldiers who fell back when Jesus said, I'm I am. I am Jesus of Nazareth. Judas probably rehearsing all of this in his mind. We don't know exactly what Judas was thinking or exactly where he was through all of this. But Matthew tells us that what Judas does once he observes that Jesus has been condemned by Israel. We're told that Judas was deeply grieved. By the way, it's only recorded in Matthew's gospel. But that Judas was deeply grieved or sorrow, sorrowed. The typical word in Greek for repentance is metanoeo. And but that's not the word that's used here. I find that interesting. Instead, another word is used here, metamelomai, a word that denotes a change of feelings about something. And I think that's on purpose. I believe that Matthew is trying to make clear that what happened here with Judas was not repentance, but regret. Matthew's point seems to be that he was regretful, not repentant. His feelings had changed, but his heart had not. While he had an emotional remorse, he didn't have any spiritual contrition. So Judas regrets his action. His own conscience smites him. This is why even non-Christians can regret things that they've done wrong. Because God has given them a conscience. We're told in Romans that he's even written the law on their hearts. So when they do wrong, they know they do wrong. Right? That's why people who aren't Christians still feel guilty and shame. And now you can harden that over a lifetime of sinning in certain ways and try to push off those feelings of guilt or shame. But they exist nonetheless. They are there. And Judas is experiencing that. He regrets his action. And he attempts to take the 30 pieces of silver back to the chief priests and elders. Remember, Judas is one of those guys who had walked with God in the flesh for around three years. 
He had experienced firsthand Jesus' love, Jesus' compassion, Jesus' power, Jesus' wisdom, Jesus' kindness. Yet in spite of all of that clear evidence, Judas handed him over as a criminal to a hostile and duplicitous religious establishment. He knows that he himself is just engaged in an unprecedented and horrifying crime. Now, we've all engaged in varieties of sin, all of them punishable by death and hell. But consider for just a moment, here Judas has literally handed over God in the flesh. He's betrayed God in the flesh. Judas knows he's betrayed someone who had never done anything wrong. Jesus is the only man of whom it can be said he had truly and perfectly innocent blood. And that's what Judas says. I had betrayed innocent blood. It's fascinating to me. Here we have Jesus' own betrayer exonerating Jesus, right? The very one who handed Jesus over to the authorities is saying here plainly, he was innocent. And he's going back to the chief priests and scribes saying, here's the 30 pieces of silver back. I betrayed innocent blood. This man is innocent. I have to admit it. I, I can't find any fault with him. There isn't any real fault with him. And all of this that's just happened is, is wrong. But the religious leaders take no action to reverse the course of events set in motion. Again, they are not after truth. The religious leaders don't care about Judas's change of mind, and they want nothing to do with Judas's money. The priests who, from whom he sought forgiveness were not interested in discussion, and they're not interested in absolving Judas of any crime. For that matter, they're just as much wrapped up in the crime that Judas is in, and they offer no comfort to Judas. They're not true friends. They don't care about Judas. Here's the tragedy of man-made religion. There's no true forgiveness. You see, because we can't earn our own forgiveness, and no one else can just give it to you. Only Jesus can forgive sinners. Only Jesus can heal the broken. Only Jesus can remove your shame. Only Jesus can give life to the dead. Only Jesus. And so as Judas goes back to these men with his regret, they offer him nothing. What is it to us? Deal with it yourself is what they say to Judas. I'm sure on some level, they're not wanting to be seen connected with this. You know, hush up, Judas. Be quiet, Judas. Don't say he's innocent, Judas. We don't have anything to do with what you're talking about, Judas. So Judas takes those 30 pieces of silver and hurls it into the temple. It says even here at Sanctuary, it's possible that the pieces of silver trickled into the holy place. Now, people have said that perhaps he does this to try to exonerate himself. Like, is he casting him out in there to somehow purchase his own forgiveness? But it appears to me that probably this is more of an act of defiance against the priests. You can't buy forgiveness with money. But if the money landed in the holy place, who's going to have to pick it up? The priests, because nobody else can. It would force them to handle the money in some form. They couldn't just ignore it. You see here how Judas found no joy in the silver that he received for betraying Jesus. This is the lie of sin, isn't it? Big promises of pleasure and joy. The end of it is just 
bitterness and guilt. Who at the end of having engaged in some sort of sinful activity goes, yes, I'm so glad that my life was filled with those sorts of things. Nobody. And if they do, they're lying even against their own conscience. They're putting on a face. Sin leaves you guilt-ridden and empty. It doesn't grant you a peaceful satisfaction. Proverbs 10.2 says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Sadly, the only one to whom Judas could flee was the very one whom Judas had given up. His one hope was the one whom he betrayed and was the one from whom he ran away. And out of regret and despair, Judas ends his own life. He hangs himself. It's recorded very simply. He withdrew and hung himself. Matthew 27, 5. Now, he must have weighed enough or he must have supported his body by an unstable branch because we hear then in Acts 1 that his body falls to the ground, hits across some rocks, and his intestines gush out. So he hangs himself, then somehow falls from the tree or the tree gives way or something. He falls headlong and he bursts open in the field. Yeah, it's gruesome. But what's even more sad about the situation is that Judas could not escape his guilt that way. He would only crystallize his condemnation for all of eternity. All that Judas's death did was intensify his guilt beyond comprehension. And that's the lie of Satan. When people from sorrow and guilt and depression or some other reason seek to end their life to escape the pain, they're believing a lie. Pain is not taken away by ending your life in that manner. For the non-Christian, the person who doesn't know Jesus, they're about to go into a pain that's unimaginably worse. They're about to go from this life where they experience some measure of God's general grace and love to a place where they'll only experience the fury of God's holy wrath. See how Satan works? Just end it all. You'll be done with the guilt. You'll be done with the shame. You'll be done with the pain. Satan's lying. Because all they've done now is crystallized a Christless eternity. They've now put them into an eternity of pain and suffering in hell. That's another of Satan's lies, that there is no hell. And for the Christian, and I'll I'll take an excursus on suicide in just a minute. But for the Christian, if some Christian commits suicide, I tip my hat to a question I'm going to answer in a minute. There's still great pain associated with it. You say, well, I know Jesus, so I'm just going to go straight to be with him. Well, first of all, it's sinful to take your own life. It's murdering yourself. Thou shalt not murder. It's one of the commandments of God. So it's wrong in and of itself. But also realize that suicide is intensely selfish because you leave everyone else to pick up the pieces to deal with the pain and suffering and difficulty that comes. Suicide is not a painless sin, just as there is no such thing as painless sin. Let me spend just a moment on suicide, though. There are some who teach that suicide is an unforgivable sin. 
Some of this, I believe, is attached to Roman Catholic doctrine regarding mortal and venial sins. Uh, Their idea that a man can come into and fall out of justification with God, depending on what, what they've done or failed to do. Venial sins are ones that you can pay off in purgatory, but mortal sins are those of a nature such that purgatory isn't good enough. You have to go to hell. You're, you're condemned forever. Unless you've gone through penance or gone to confessional, or this sort of idea, and you've worked off the, the mortal sins, come back into justification. But if one is consistent with Roman Catholic theology, there are a number of other sins that also you can fall into the mortal sin category, which would bring them with them the same consequence of hell should you die before expiating those sins properly. And then remember also that nearly everybody else spends at least some time in purgatory to somehow clean themselves up before getting to heaven. Purgatory, another Roman Catholic doctrine not found in the Bible. But all of the above is not derived from the scriptures. Dividing sins into mortal and venial, greater and lesser, is quite arbitrary. To be guilty of sin is to be deserving of hell. Yet there is no sin too great that Jesus cannot forgive. Note, we cannot propitiate our own sins. We cannot make satisfaction for our own sins. We cannot cannot gain our own forgiveness. But Jesus can and does for his children. So is suicide forgivable? Absolutely. Just as taking God's name in vain is forgivable, or disobeying your parents is forgivable, or lying is forgivable, or stealing is forgivable, or bearing false witness is forgivable, or committing adultery is forgivable, or murder (coughs) is forgivable. This is the further question. Do you have to cite every sin that you've ever committed in order to be forgiven of those particular sins? If so, again, none of us would go to heaven. For how many sins in a day are we committing that we're not even aware of? much less the ones that we are aware of that we have failed to make specific confession regarding. And how many might be committed right before death without a specific recounting or going through some particular motions of penance? Do you have to confess each sin specifically in order to be forgiven? If so, again, no, no one of us would be going to heaven Further question is this, can a genuine Christian commit suicide? That's a further question. Can someone who's genuinely saved commit suicide? Well, I just want to answer answer that question by asking a question. Can a genuine Christian commit adultery? Can a genuine Christian murder someone? This is the question. Can a genuine Christian sin greatly? Yes. Can a genuine Christian deny Jesus? Consider Peter in just a moment. But are there people who commit suicide who do end up in hell? Absolutely there are. Just as there are sinners of other sins who will spend eternity in hell as well. The only hope for any sinner is Jesus. We know in Judas's case that he would go to destruction. Jesus said of him that he's the son of destruction, the son of perdition. John 17, 12. Jesus also said in Matthew 26, 45 and 45, 24 and 25, which we had read this morning, it would be better for that man to not have been born. Judas says, surely it's not I, Rabbi. And Jesus says, you've said it yourself. What do we learn from Judas? Let me say this. If you despair of the ability to make things right on your own or through some other 
human being, you are right to despair of it. Where Judas goes wrong is that he doesn't go to Jesus. We're right to despair of helping ourselves or seeking others to remove our guilt. But do not despair of God's ability and willingness to help. Well, what about those 30 pieces of silver that he cast into the temple? Here we get another glimpse of the religious hypocrisy in play. The Jewish leaders have no problem paying 30 pieces of silver to Judas to betray Jesus, but by no means will they accept it back. That's blood money. So you're saying you're okay paying them off to get Jesus, but you won't take it back? You see, they saw Judas as a tool to be used to procure Jesus' arrest. They didn't care about his spiritual need. And I am so thankful that Jesus does not respond to sinners this way. When we come to him with our sins, confessing them, he's faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't say to a sinner who comes to him, what's it to me? See to it yourself. Here are the religious leaders. I mean, if there's anyone that someone of that time would have gone to for spiritual help, it would have been them. And you see them saying to Judas, what's it to us? See to it yourself. That's not how Jesus responds. There can be hardly any greater contrast. Going to this world with our sins leaves us no better. Trying to see to our sins ourselves helps us none. But going to Jesus changes everything. Because He alone can forgive our sins and heal us and restore us and grant us life. And yet here again is another historical irony. They can't take the 30 pieces of silver into the treasury. So what they do is they purchase a field. And they purchase the field in Judas's name. This is why even you see X pick up on that. Judas purchased a field with the 30 pieces of silver. Well, Judas was dead. But his 30 pieces of silver were utilized to purchase a field in Judas's name. Because the temple didn't want to have connection with it. But interestingly enough, he says, even to this day, we know it as the field of blood. This thing didn't stay hidden. People in the general area and vicinity knew the treachery that was going on. It reminds me that all sin will one day ultimately be unveiled. It will be brought out. The deeds of darkness will be brought into the light. The good news is if you're in Jesus, then they've already been paid for. But if you're not in Christ, then you will be judged for your sin justly, perfectly by a holy and righteous God. But Matthew won't let us forget along the narrative that everything happens in accordance with God the Father's plan. Even the purchase of this field is in accordance with Old Testament prophecy. Nothing is happening by chance. All of this is happening by God's sovereign plan. Well, let's quickly look at the study in repentance. Consider Peter. We saw this in our discussion about Peter last time, but there's a huge contrast here. We see them both sin in great ways. Peter is in the courtyard. He's asked if he's one of Jesus' disciples three times. He denies it. He shows foolishness, saying, I'll never deny you, Jesus. He shows cowardice, even not admitting it to a slave girl. He shows deceit, flatly lying and denying, even under oath, even swearing, even combining it with curses, either curses to himself or curses to Jesus. Strong language from Peter. He too withdraws, as Judas did, 
But when we pick up with Peter, we find that instead of despairing and killing himself, he soon reunites with the rest of the disciples. And upon hearing news of the empty tomb, he goes running to the tomb. And shortly thereafter, we find Jesus restoring Peter with those three questions, three times asking him if he loved him. A perfect response to Peter's three denials. What is different? What's different about repentance versus regret? What's the difference between these two things? Well, at least I can approach the beginning of the definition and maybe it's something you can look into further yourself. What, what distinguishes a mere worldly sorrow from a godly sorrow? I think even those phrases start to give us a hint as to what's different between regret and repentance. Because repentance is certainly involves sorrow for sin and regret for wrongdoing. That's true, but it goes beyond that. It arises from a reverence for God, a, a godly sorrow, a sorrow that thinks of things as God would think of them, which produces in the person repenting simultaneously a love for God and a love for righteousness, a change of heart and about face, both of the mind, emotions and the will. And the only thing that will bring that to pass is God's grace. What changes a hardened, stubborn, rebellious sinner? It's not their own soft heart. They don't have one. It's God's grace. Repentance itself is a gift from God. A gift from a loving and gracious Savior. Peter is restored. How is that restoration possible? You see, Judas lost when he won. But Jesus won when he lost. That's point number three. When losing is winning. The vindication of Jesus. Jesus would die. And Jesus would be buried. He would get a sham of a trial before the Romans as well. He'd be handed over to the Romans. The Romans would all say, there's nothing, I don't find anything guilty in him. But it would eventually kill him anyway. Put him to death by crucifixion. And then Jesus would be buried in a borrowed tomb. And still to this day, whenever that time of year comes around, we still celebrate Good Friday. And why do we call it good? It sounds like such a, a contrasted... Why, it's so, so ironic. Why call that Friday good? That greatest act of treachery, that mockery of justice, and we still call it Good Friday? What makes Friday... What makes Good Friday so good? Well, it's just the... Hour of darkness was not the end of the story. The deeds of darkness would have their hour, but they would not have the last because Jesus would follow that with his glorious resurrection. And in, will, in winning, in his act of treachery, Judas lost. But in willingly submitting himself to God the Father's plan, Jesus' losing was his winning. A complete reversal was on the horizon. Dishonor would give way to honor. Philippians 2 says that he emptied himself and humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. But this man, God, highly exalted, giving him the name above every name that every knee one day will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not all is lost because Jesus won in his losing. He triumphed over sin and the grave. He satisfied the righteous demands of a holy God against sinners who trust in him. Jesus bore the wrath of God on their behalf and made a way where there otherwise was no way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth 
and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In a moment that looked like the greatest tragedy, Jesus triumphed. Still today, there are varieties of Judas's and Peter's. The wages of sin is death. We all deserve death and eternal judgment in hell. If we look to ourselves or we go to others, all is lost. But if we'll run to the cross, if we'll call upon the name of the Lord, he will save us. Here's the question to everyone. Will you allow worldly sorrow to lead you to death? Will you hold on to your shame and your grief and receive the just penalty for your sins? Or will you call out to Jesus? Will you confess your sin to him? Will you beg for his mercy? Will you not merely regret your sin, but repent of it and place your trust in Jesus to save you? The good news is, if you will do that, you will find a loving Savior who's ready and willing to receive you and restore you and grant you eternal life. Not all is lost because Jesus died and then rose again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious news of the gospel. I think we all love twist endings. Endings which appear to be going one way and then just get turned around. And the best type of twist ending is, I believe, the happy twist ending where it ends much better than you could have ever dreamed. Lord, we know you've already set the standard in that kind of story. You took a story that looked as if all was lost. And through the death of your son, you show not only your just the just penalty for sins, but also your love and grace for sinners. And as you truly vindicated your son, rising him from the grave, conquering sin and death. I pray even in this place, Lord, there might be some that have been dealing with deep amounts of regret and sorrow. They're on, maybe right now you've, you've worked on their hearts and they're honest about how sinful they have been. Lord, I pray that it would not be a worldly sorrow that just leads to despair and depression and hopelessness, but instead that you would grant them a godly sorrow. Yes, a sorrow and regret for sin, but a desire to please and honor you. Put your love within them. Help them see that there is a Savior. It's not by running to pastors or priests or religious leaders or family members, it's by running to Jesus that a man can be saved. Call them to yourself even right now, Lord. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.